Chapter Four, Part Three of Memoirs of Extraordinary Popular Delusions and the Madness of Crowds, Volume One. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Morgan Scorpion. Memoirs of Extraordinary Popular Delusions and the Madness of Crowds, Volume One by Charles Mackay. The Alchemists. Part Three, Nicholas Flamel. The story of this alchemist, as handed down by tradition and enshrined in the pages of Langlet de Fresnoy, is not a little marvellous. He was born at Pontoise of a poor but respectable family at the end of the thirteenth or beginning of the fourteenth century. Having no patrimony, he set out for Paris at an early age to try his fortune as a public scribe. He had received a good education, was well skilled in the learned languages, and was an excellent penman. He soon procured occupation as a letter-writer and copyist, and used to sit at the corner of the Rue de Marivaux and practice his calling, but he hardly made profit enough to keep body and soul together. To mend his fortunes he tried poetry, but this was a more wretched occupation still. As a transcriber he had at least gained bread and cheese, but his rhymes were not worth a crust. He then tried painting with as little success, and as a last resource began to search for the philosopher's stone and tell fortunes. This was a happier idea. He soon increased in substance, and had wherewithal to live comfortably. He therefore took unto himself his wife Petronella, and began to save money, but continued to all outward appearance as poor and miserable as before. In the course of a few years he became desperately addicted to the study of alchemy, and thought of nothing but the philosopher's stone, the elixir of life, and the universal alkahest. In the year 1257 he bought by chance an old book for two florins, which soon became his sole study. It was written with a steel instrument upon the bark of trees, and contained twenty-one, or as he himself always expressed it, three times seven leaves. The writing was very elegant and in the Latin language. Each seventh leaf contained a picture and no writing. On the first of these was a serpent swallowing rods, on the second a cross with a serpent crucified, and on the third the representation of a desert, in the midst of which was a fountain, with serpents crawling from side to side. It purported to be written by no less a personage than Abraham, patriarch, Jew, prince, philosopher, priest, Levite, and astrologer, and invoked curses upon any one who should cast eyes upon it, without being a sacrificer or a scribe. Nicholas Flamel never thought it extraordinary that Abraham should have known Latin, and was convinced that the characters on the book had been traced by the hands of that great patriarch himself. He was at first afraid to read it, after he became aware of the curse it contained, but he got over that difficulty by recollecting that, although he was not a sacrificer, he had practised as a scribe. As he read he was filled with admiration, and found that it was a perfect treatise upon the transmutation of metals. All the processes were clearly explained, the vessels, the retorts, the mixtures, and the proper times and seasons for experiment. But, as ill luck would have it, the possession of the philosopher's stone, or prime agent in the work, was presupposed. This was a difficulty which was not to be got over, 
It was like telling a starving man how to cook a beefsteak, instead of giving him the money to buy one. But Nicholas did not despair, and set about studying the hieroglyphics and allegorical representations with which the book abounded. He soon convinced himself that it had been one of the sacred books of the Jews, and that it was taken from the Temple of Jerusalem on its destruction by Titus. The process of reasoning by which he arrived at this conclusion is not stated. From some expression in the treatise, he learned that the allegorical drawings on the fourth and fifth leaves enshrined the secret of the philosopher's stone, without which all the fine Latin of the directions was utterly unavailing. He invited all the alchemists and learned men of Paris to come and examine them, but they all departed as wise as they came. Nobody could make anything either of Nicholas or his pictures, and some even went so far as to say that his invaluable book was not worth a farthing. This was not to be borne, and Nicholas resolved to discover the great secret by himself without troubling the philosophers. He found on the first page of the fourth leaf the picture of Mercury attacked by an old man resembling Saturn or Time. The latter had an hourglass on his head, and in his hand a scythe with which he aimed a blow at Mercury's feet. The reverse of the leaf represented a flower growing on a mountain top, shaken rudely by the wind, with a blue stalk, red and white blossoms, and leaves of pure gold. Around it were a great number of dragons and griffins. On the first page of the fifth leaf was a fine garden, in the midst of which was a rose tree in full bloom, supported against the trunk of a giant oak. At the foot of this there bubbled up a fountain of milk-white water, which, forming a small stream, flowed through the garden, and was afterwards lost in the sands. On the second page was a king, with a sword in his hand, superintending a number of soldiers who, in execution of his orders, were killing a great multitude of young children, spurning the prayers and tears of their mothers, who tried to save them from destruction. The blood of the children was carefully collected by another party of soldiers, and put into a large vessel, in which two allegorical figures of the sun and the moon were bathing themselves. For twenty-one years poor Nicholas wearied himself with the study of these pictures, but still he could make nothing of them. His wife Petronella at last persuaded him to find out some learned rabbi, but there was no rabbi in Paris learned enough to be of any service to him. The Jews met but small encouragement to fix their abode in France, and all the chiefs of that people were located in Spain. To Spain, accordingly, Nicholas Flamel repaired. He left his book in Paris, for fear, perhaps, that he might be robbed of it on the road, and telling his neighbours that he was going on a pilgrimage to the shrine of St. James of Compostello, he trudged on foot towards Madrid in search of a rabbi. He was absent two years in that country, and made himself known to a great number of Jews, descendants of those who had been expelled from France in the reign of Philip Augustus. The believers in the Philosopher's Stone gave the following account of his adventures. They say that at Lyon he made the acquaintance of a converted Jew named Couchers, a very learned physician, to whom he explained the title and nature of his little book. The doctor was transported with joy as soon as he heard it named, and immediately resolved to accompany Nicholas to Paris that he might have a sight of it. The two set out together, the doctor on the way entertaining his companion with the history of his book, which, if the genuine book he thought it to be, from the description he had heard of it, was in the handwriting of Abraham himself, and had been in the possession of personages no less distinguished than Moses, Joshua, Solomon, and Esdras. It contained all the secrets of alchemy and of many other sciences, and was the most valuable book that had ever existed in this world. 
the doctor was himself no mean adept and nicholas profited greatly by his discourse as in the garb of poor pilgrims they wended their way to paris convinced of their power to turn every old shovel in that capital into pure gold but unfortunately when they reached orleans the doctor was taken dangerously ill nicholas watched by his bedside and acted the double part of a physician and nurse to him but he died after a few days lamenting with his last breath that he had not lived long enough to see the precious volume nicholas rendered the last honours to his body and with a sorrowful heart and not one sou in his pocket proceeded home to his wife petronella he immediately recommenced the study of his pictures but for two whole years he was as far from understanding them as ever at last in the third year a glimmer of light stole over his understanding he recalled some expression of his friend the doctor which had hitherto escaped his memory and he found that all his previous experiments had been conducted on a wrong basis he recommenced them now with renewed energy and at the end of the year had the satisfaction to see all his toils rewarded on the thirteenth of january thirteen eighty two says langlet he made a projection on mercury and had some very excellent silver on the twenty fifth of april following he converted a large quantity of mercury into gold and the great secret was his nicholas was now about eighty years of age and still a hale and stout old man his friends say that by a simultaneous discovery of the elixir of life he found means to keep death at a distance for another quarter of a century and that he died in fourteen fifteen at the age of a hundred and sixteen in this interval he made immense quantities of gold though to all outward appearance he was as poor as a mouse at an early period of his change of fortune he had like a worthy man taken counsel with his old wife petronella as to the best use he could make of his wealth petronella replied that as unfortunately they had no children the best thing he could do was to build hospitals and endow churches nicholas thought so too especially when he began to find that his elixir could not keep off death and that the grim foe was making rapid advances upon him he richly endowed the church of saint jacques de la boucherie near the rue de marivaux where he had all his life resided besides seven others in different parts of the kingdom he also endowed fourteen hospitals and built three chapels the fame of his great wealth and his munificent benefactions soon spread over all the country and he was visited among others by the celebrated doctors of that day jean gerson jean de cortecroix and pierre de Ailly. they found him in his humble apartment meanly clad and eating porridge out of an earthen vessel and with regard to his secret as impenetrable as all his predecessors in alchemy his fame reached the ears of the king charles the sixth who sent m de cramoisy the master of requests to find out whether nicholas had indeed discovered the philosopher's stone but m de cramoisy took nothing by his visit all his attempts to sound the alchemist were unavailing and he returned to his royal master no wiser than he came it was in this year fourteen fourteen that he lost his faithful wife petronella he did not long survive her but died in the following year and was buried with great pomp by the grateful priests of saint jacques de la boucherie the great wealth of nicholas flamel is undoubted as the records of several churches and hospitals in france can testify that he practised alchemy is equally certain as he left behind several works upon the subject those who knew him well and were incredulous about the philosopher's stone gave a satisfactory solution to, of the secret of his wealth 
They say that he was always a miser and a usurer, that his journey to Spain was undertaken with very different motives from those pretended by the alchemists, that, in fact, he went to collect debts due from Jews in that country to their brethren in Paris, and that he charged a commission of fully cent per cent in consideration of the difficulty of collecting and the dangers of the road, that when he possessed thousands he lived upon almost nothing, and was the general money-lender, at enormous profits, to all the dissipated young men at the French court. Among the works written by Nicholas Flamel on the subject of alchemy is The Philosophic Summary, a poem, reprinted in 1735, as an appendix to the third volume of the Roman de la Rose. He also wrote three treatises upon natural philosophy and an alchemic allegory entitled Le Désir Désiré. Specimens of his writing, and a facsimile of the drawings in his Book of Abraham, may be seen in Salmon's Bibliothèque des Philosophes Chimiques. The writer of the article, Flamel, in the Biographie Universelle, says that for a hundred years after the death of Flamel, many of the adepts believed that he was still alive, and that he would live for upwards of six hundred years. The house he formerly occupied, at the corner of the Rue des Marivaux, has been often taken by credulous speculators, and ransacked from top to bottom in the hopes that gold might be found. A report was current in Paris, not long previous to the year 1816, that some lodgers had found in the cellars several jars filled with a dark-coloured ponderous matter. Upon the strength of the rumour, a believer in all the wondrous tales told of Nicholas Flamel bought the house, and nearly pulled it to pieces in ransacking the walls and wainscoting for hidden gold. He got nothing for his pains, however, and had a heavy bill to pay to restore his dilapidations. George Ripley While alchemy was thus cultivated on the continent of Europe, it was not neglected in the Isles of Britain. Since the time of Roger Bacon, it had fascinated the imagination of many ardent men in England. In the year 1404, an Act of Parliament was passed declaring the making of gold and silver to be felony. Great alarm was felt at that time, lest any alchemist should succeed in his projects, and perhaps bring ruin upon the state by furnishing boundless wealth to some designing tyrant, who would make use of it to enslave his country. The alarm appears to have soon subsided, for, in the year 1455, King Henry VI, by advice of his council and parliament, granted four successive patents and commissions to several knights, citizens of London, chemists, monks, mass-priests and others, to find out the philosopher's stone and elixir, to the great benefit, said the patent, of the realm, and the enabling of the king to pay all the debts of the crown in real gold and silver. Prynne, in his Aurum Reginae, observes, as a note to this passage, that the king's reason for granting this patent to ecclesiastics was, that they were such good artists in transubstantiating bread and wine in the Eucharist, and therefore the more likely to be able to effect the transmutation of baser metals into better. No gold, of course, was ever made, and the next year the king, doubting very much the practicability of the thing, took further advice, and appointed a commission of ten learned men and persons of eminence to judge and certify to him whether the transmutation of metals were a thing to practice or no. It does not appear whether the commission ever made any report upon the subject. In the succeeding reign an alchemist appeared who pretended to have discovered the secret. This was George Ripley, the canon of Bridlington in Yorkshire. He studied for twenty years in the universities of Italy, and was a great favourite with Pope Innocent VIII who made him one of his domestic chaplains and master of the ceremonies in his household.
Returning to England in 1477, he dedicated to King Edward IV his famous work, The Compound of Alchemy, or The Twelve Gates Leading to the Discovery of the Philosopher's Stone. These gates he described to be calcination, solution, separation, conjunction, putrefaction, congelation, sibation, sublimation, fermentation, exaltation, multiplication, and projection, to which he might have added botheration, the most important process of all. He was very rich, and allowed it to be believed that he could make gold out of iron. Fuller, in his Worthies of England, says that an English gentleman of good credit reported that in his travels abroad he saw a record in the island of Malta which declared that Ripley gave yearly to the knights of that island, and of Rhodes, the enormous sum of one hundred thousand pounds sterling to enable them to carry on the war against the Turks. In his old age he became an anchorite near Boston, and wrote twenty-five volumes upon the subject of alchemy, the most important of which is the Duodecim Portarum, already mentioned. Before he died, he seems to have acknowledged that he had misspent his life in this vain study, and requested that all men, when they met with any of his books, would burn them, or afford them no credit, as they had been written merely from his opinion and not from proof, and that subsequent trial had made manifest to him that they were false and vain. Basil Valentine Germany also produced many famous alchemists in the 15th century, the chief of whom are Basil Valentine, Bernard of Treves, and the abbot Trithemius. Basil Valentine was born at Mayence, and was made prior of St. Peter's at Erfurt about the year 1414. It was known during his life that he diligently sought the philosopher's stone and that he had written some works upon the process of transmutation. They were thought for many years to be lost, but were, after his death, discovered enclosed in the stonework of one of the pillars in the abbey. They were twenty-one in number, and are fully set forth in the third volume of Langlais' History of the Hermetic Philosophy. The alchemists asserted that heaven itself conspired to bring to light these extraordinary works, and that the pillar in which they were enclosed was miraculously shattered by a thunderbolt, and that as soon as the manuscripts were liberated, the pillar closed up again of its own accord. Bernard of Treves the life of this philosopher is a remarkable instance of talent and perseverance misapplied. In the search of his chimera nothing could daunt him. Repeated disappointment never diminished his hopes, and from the age of fourteen to that of eighty-five he was incessantly employed among the drugs and furnaces of his laboratory, wasting his life with the view of prolonging it, and reducing himself to beggary in the hopes of growing rich. He was born at either Treves or Padua in the year 1406, his father is said by some to have been a physician in the latter city, and by others to have been Count of the Marches of Treves and one of the most wealthy nobles of his country. At all events, whether noble or physician, he was a rich man, and left his son a magnificent estate. At the age of fourteen he first became enamoured of the science of alchemy, and read the Arabian authors in their own language. He himself has left a most interesting record of his labours and wanderings, from which the following particulars are chiefly extracted. The first book which fell into his hands was that of the Arabian philosopher Razors, from the reading of which he imagined that he had discovered the means of augmenting gold a hundredfold. For four years he worked in his laboratory, with the book of Razors continually before him. At the end of that time he found that he had spent no less than eight hundred crowns upon his experiment, and had got nothing but fire and smoke for his pains. 
he now began to lose confidence in razors and turned to the works of geber he studied him assiduously for two years and being young rich and credulous was beset by all the alchemists of the town who kindly assisted him in spending his money he did not lose his faith in geber or patience with his hungry assistants until he had lost two thousand crowns a very considerable sum in those days among all the crowd of pretended men of science who surrounded him there was but one as enthusiastic and as disinterested as himself with this man who was a monk of the order of st francis he contracted an intimate friendship and spent nearly all his time some obscure treatises of rupasissa and sacrobosco having fallen into their hands they were persuaded from reading them that highly rectified spirits of wine was the universal alkahest or dissolvent which would aid them greatly in the process of transmutation they rectified the alcohol thirty times till they made it so strong as to burst the vessels which contained it after they had worked three years and spent three hundred crowns in the liquor they discovered that they were on the wrong track they next tried alum and copperas but this great secret still escaped them they afterwards imagined that there was a marvellous virtue in all excrement especially the human and actually employed more than two years in experimenting upon it with mercury salt and molten lead again the adepts flocked around him from far and near to aid him with their counsels he received them all hospitably and divided his wealth among them so generously and unhesitatingly that they gave him the name of the good trevisan by which he is still often mentioned in works that treat on alchemy for twelve years he led this life making experiments every day upon some new substance and praying to god night and morning that he might discover the secret of transmutation in this interval he lost his friend the monk and was joined by a magistrate of the city of treves as ardent as himself in the search his new acquaintance imagined that the ocean was the mother of gold and that sea salt would change lead or iron into the precious metals bernard resolved to try and transporting his laboratory to a house on the shores of the baltic he worked upon salt for more than a year melting it sublimating it crystallizing it and occasionally drinking it for the sake of other experiments still the strange enthusiast was not wholly discouraged and his failure in one trial only made him the more anxious to attempt another he was now approaching the age of fifty and had as yet seen nothing of the world he therefore determined to travel through germany italy france and spain wherever he stopped he made inquiries whether there were any alchemists in the neighbourhood he invariably sought them out and if they were poor relieved and if affluent encouraged them at cito he became acquainted with one geoffrey louvier a monk of that place who persuaded him that the essence of eggshells was a valuable ingredient he tried therefore what could be done and was only prevented from wasting a year or two on the experiment by the opinions of an attorney at bergham in flanders who said that the great secret resulted in vinegar and copperas he was not convinced of the absurdity of this idea until he had nearly poisoned himself he resided in france for about five years when hearing accidentally that one master henry confessor to the emperor frederick the third had discovered the philosopher's stone he set out for germany to pay him a visit he had as usual surrounded himself with a set of hungry dependents several of whom determined to accompany him he had not heart to refuse them and he arrived at vienna with five of them bernard sent a polite invitation to the confessor and gave him a sumptuous entertainment 
at which were present nearly all the alchemists of Vienna. Master Henry frankly confessed that he had not discovered the philosopher's stone, but that he had all his life been employed in searching for it, and would so continue till he found it or died. This was a man after Bernard's own heart, and they vowed with each other an eternal friendship. It was resolved at supper that each alchemist present should contribute a certain sum towards raising forty-two marks of gold, which in five days it was confidently asserted by Master Henry, would increase in his furnace, fivefold. Bernard, being the richest man, contributed the lion's share, ten marks of gold. Master Henry, five, and the others one or two apiece, except the dependents of Bernard, who were obliged to borrow their quota from their patron. The grand experiment was duly made. The golden marks were put into a crucible with a quantity of salt, copperas, aquafortis, eggshells, mercury, lead, and dung. The alchemist watched this precious mess with intense interest, expecting that it would soon agglomerate into one lump of pure gold. At the end of three weeks they gave up the trial, upon some excuse that the crucible was not strong enough, or that some necessary ingredient was wanting. Whether any thief had put his hands into the crucible is not known, but it is alleged that the gold found therein at the close of the experiment was worth only sixteen marks, instead of the forty-two which were put there at the beginning. Bernard, though he made no gold at Vienna, made away with a very considerable quantity. He felt the loss so acutely that he vowed to think no more of the philosopher's stone. This wise resolution he kept for two months, but he was miserable. He was in the condition of the gambler, who cannot resist the fascination of the game while he has a coin remaining, but plays on with the hope of retrieving former losses. Till hope forsakes him and he can live no longer. He returned once more to his beloved crucibles, and resolved to prosecute his journey in search of a philosopher who had discovered the secret, and would communicate it to so zealous and persevering an adept as himself. From Vienna he travelled to Rome, and from Rome to Madrid. Taking ship at Gibraltar, he proceeded to Messina, and from Messina to Cyprus, from Cyprus to Greece, from Greece to Constantinople, and thence into Egypt, Palestine, and Persia. These wanderings occupied him about eight years. From Persia he made his way back to Messina, and from thence into France. He afterwards passed over into England, still in search of his great chimera, and this occupied four years more of his life. He was now growing both old and poor, for he was sixty-two years of age, and had been obliged to sell a great portion of his patrimony to provide for his expenses. His journey to Persia had cost upwards of thirteen thousand crowns, about one half of which had been fairly melted in his all-devouring furnaces. The other half was lavished upon the sycophants that he made it his business to search out in every town he stopped at. On his return to Treves he found to his sorrow that if not an actual beggar he was not much better. His relatives looked upon him as a madman and refused even to see him. Too proud to ask for favours from anyone, and still confident that, some day or other, he would be the possessor of unbounded wealth, he made up his mind to retire to the island of Rhodes, where he might, in the meantime, hide his poverty from the eyes of the world. Here he might have lived unknown and happy, but as ill luck would have it, he fell in with a monk as mad as himself upon the subject of transmutation. They were, however, both so poor that they could not afford to buy the proper materials to work with. They kept up each other's spirits by learned discourses on the hermetic philosophy, and in the reading of all the great authors who had written upon the subject. Thus did they nurse their folly, as the good wife of Tam O'Shanter did her wrath, to keep it warm. After Bernard had resided about a year in Rhodes, 
a merchant, who knew his family, advanced him the sum of eight thousand florins, upon the security of the last remaining acres of his formerly large estate. Once more provided with funds, he recommenced his labours with all the zeal and enthusiasm of a young man. For three years he hardly stepped out of his laboratory. He ate there and slept there, and did not even give himself time to wash his hands and clean his beard, so intense was his application. It is melancholy to think that such wonderful perseverance should have been wasted in so vain a pursuit, and that energy so unconquerable should have had no worthier field to strive in. Even when he had fumed away his last coin and had nothing left in perspective to keep his old age from starvation, hope never forsook him. He still dreamed of ultimate success, and sat down, a grey-headed man of eighty, to read over all the authors on the Hermetic Mysteries, from Geber to his own day, lest he should have misunderstood some process, which it was not yet too late to recommence. The alchemists say he succeeded at last, and discovered the secret of transmutation in his eighty-second year. They add that he lived three years afterwards to enjoy his wealth. He lived, it is true, to this great age, and made a valuable discovery, more valuable than gold or gems. He learned, as he himself informs us, just before he had attained his eighty-third year, that the great secret of philosophy was contentment with our lot. Happy would it have been for him if he had discovered it sooner, and before he became decrepit, a beggar, and an exile. He died at Rhodes in the year 1490, and all the alchemists of Europe sang elegies over him, and sounded his praise as the good Trevisan. He wrote several treatises upon his chimera, the chief of which are the Book of Chemistry, the Verbum de Missum, and an essay, De Natura Ovi. End of chapter 4, part 3